0: that happens on Easter, on the original Easter Sunday. It's somewhat of a lengthy story, uh, but a pretty well-known one. And so let me go ahead and dive in as we look at Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Here's what Luke says. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? Jesus asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, let us pray. God, we pray that on this beautiful spring day that you would open our eyes to you. Wherever it is that we may be on this day, we pray that we would know that we are not alone. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So it's late in the day on that very first Easter when these two travelers are on their way to Emmaus. They've been disciples of Jesus, but we don't really know that much about them. There's great conjecture. Some think that it was Cleopas and perhaps his wife. Others would suggest that, well, maybe it's Cleopas and Luke, the the writer of this particular gospel. We aren't for sure. What we do know is that as they were going, they had one thing on their mind, and that was what had happened to Jesus. And so we're told that they were discussing this and they kept talking about it and they were the the confusion, the questions, and and perhaps the fears and and not knowing. And so there they are and they're having all of these conversations when a stranger comes up beside them. Who knows how long the stranger had been there? You get the sense that they were pretty wrapped up in this conversation. So, more than likely, the stranger had perhaps been walking. For quite some time, near them, now we don't know, or they don't know who the stranger is, but this is one of those great stories that that we as the hearer or the reader, that we know who it is it's Jesus, but we're told that they are kept from seeing him. now, why is that? Well, we really don't know maybe maybe Jesus just looks so different post resurrection that they simply didn't recognize him. Maybe, uh, maybe it's, it's that God just didn't want them to see who he is, or maybe it's because in the midst of their grief and their shock and their pain, they simply could not see what was right in front of them. A stranger asks them what it is that they've been talking about. What are they so wrapped up about? And Luke says that after he asked them that that they then stood still that they then stood still looking sad I love that description of shock and despair because it seems so apt that in the midst of grief And sadness, you are standing still, and the world around you seems to be moving as if nothing out of the ordinary has happened, and yet you simply cannot go on. It is hard to move. It is difficult even to breathe. They don't seem all that excited or happy about the fact that Jesus, the stranger, had even asked this question. You can almost hear it. It's a bit terse. Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, they say, who do not know the things that have taken place in this day? Right, as Scott Hosey says, it's clear that this is this description of despair and grief, this almost anger that anybody could keep going without realizing what horrible thing had occurred. And the stranger, Jesus, I love this. He's very sly in this. I I picture him almost having kind of a smirk as he says this, a smirk that they clearly didn't see. Because he then says to them, What things? And so they begin to describe what things, what things, we'll tell you what things, strange man. And so they begin to talk to Jesus about. Jesus, you're supposed to have fun with this story because it's a funny story. And so he begins, oh, wow, you may not have heard about yourself, even though they don't realize they're saying that, but let me tell you. And so they begin to go on and say how he was this great prophet of God. I mean, this remarkable prophet who did all these incredible things. But the chief priests, right, and the, the, the rulers, they had him crucified. And then they give these haunting words that we'll talk about here in just a minute. And they say, but... We had hoped that he was going to be the one who would redeem Israel. But we had hoped. Now I hope that you catch the irony there in the fact that they are saying, but we had hoped that he would redeem Israel, but Clearly, he won't because he was crucified, when in reality, the very reason that they have been redeemed, as they will see, is because of the fact that he was crucified. It's this fascinating story. And so there they are, and they're in this sense of despair, but there is a glimmer of hope. Because they go on to say, but now there is this one thing, which is that we had uh, some women who went to go to the body earlier today. They went to go see Jesus, but he wasn't there. And they had a vision of angels who told them that he was alive. And they came back, and so a few of our guys went. and uh, But they, 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 you know what? Uh, the body wasn't there, but they didn't see Jesus. Do you get that one? Here they are, they're frustrated, they're upset. Oh, these guys, they didn't see Jesus as they are staring at Jesus. So Jesus is not pleased. I love this. He's just like, you fools. How can you be so slow? And so then he begins to go on and he begins to describe himself, and how from the very prophets, it was very clear from Moses and others, it was very clear how, yes, the Messiah, a.k.a. me, was going to suffer. After talking for some time, they get to Emmaus, and Luke tells us that Jesus is going to go ahead. Which, as some have pointed out, and I think rightfully so, is this great theological insight that it's easy to miss. Which is that Jesus is never going to force himself into our lives. He will be present, but he is always waiting an invitation from us. so that's exactly what the two travelers do. They invite him. In fact, they strongly invite him, we are told. They urged him, no, no, no stay here with us. It's nighttime. You don't want to keep going. And so they do, and they, he comes inside, all three of them, and there's this fascinating flip here where they had been the host. They invited him, but immediately Jesus becomes the host. And in this clear reaching back or pointing back to what had happened just a few days earlier at what we oftentimes call the Last Supper. Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And in that moment, they recognized him. In that moment, the scales fell off their eyes. And in that moment, he disappeared. And then they looked at each other. And isn't this what we oftentimes say? That it's at that moment that they then look back and they'd be like, oh, of course. Weren't our hearts warmed? We had this nebulous feeling the whole time and now we know what it was. It was Jesus. As so often occurs when we look back, then we can see how the presence of the Lord has been there all along. And I love this because this is, turns into a grace dangerous. You see, they had stopped because it was nighttime because you don't travel at night. You don't go on the road at nighttime. That's when you're robbed or worse. But in that moment, they did not care. You see, when you have this experience of Jesus, when you you see the resurrected Savior, when you know that you have been redeemed, when you understand the grace, you care not about those other dangers. They fall by the wayside. And so they began to run back the seven and a half miles or so back to Jerusalem. They are running there despite the danger. They do not care because they have to tell what they have seen and experienced. As Isaiah says, how beautiful, are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. It's a great story. And the challenge that a preacher has when it comes to this story is that it is so great that probably the best thing that he or she should do is just to simply read it, maybe retell it, and then go sit down. we got plenty of time. (laughs) Of course, the other challenge is knowing then if you're only going to focus on one or two things, what things should you focus on? It is easy for most of us to go to the end of the story. As is often the case, we prefer to skip over the more difficult or the the more challenging parts. We want to go to the happy ending. We want to go immediately to them recognizing the resurrected Savior and running back to Emmaus. But as I was reflecting on this passage this week, I kept getting stuck in the middle of the journey where the travelers are standing still, where the travelers are looking like they are clearly in despair and grief. Perhaps there are many reasons why I kind of stopped in that particular place. Maybe it's because we've had this great year, this not great, this difficult year of COVID. Or... I also think it's because, you know, as, as pastors, uh, uh, when you are pastoring, churches go through ebbs and flows. They go through times when things are really going well for people in the church. And then they go through times when there are clear challenges. And I would suggest that this is, this is a time for many in our congregation where those that they love are dying. Where diagnoses are not what we had hoped. Where brokenness and pain seem to keep coming like waves upon the shore. And we begin to feel the weight of that, all of us. Which is why I kept coming back to those four words that I thought were just so haunting yet powerful. But we had hoped. I would suggest that you can think about any difficult time of your life, any painful time in your life, and you can almost always begin by saying, but... We had hoped. In fact, if you asked me to give a mantra for this COVID year, I would say that the best mantra you could have is, but we had hope." For us as a family, you know, we were supposed to go on this great trip, right, to to Disneyland. The first time we'd gone to any of the Disney parks, Christmas 2019 was epic, you know. I mean, they were so excited. We had this balloon. It was massive. It was ridiculous. We paid way too much for it. But it was going to be our way of telling them, hey, in June, we're going to go to Disneyland. It's going to be great. You should have seen the kids. They're like, ah, you do love us. And I think we waited all the way until about the end of May, even though we knew sooner than that. To look at these four little kids and say, finally, I know we had hope. I think about us as a church, you know. I mean, we we did a lot of work, as we've talked about, trying to figure out how do we move forward with our big building plan. Oh, we were, you know, literally three days away, four days away, Thursday to Sunday, three, four, however you count it, when everything shut down. And we looked at each other and said, but we had hoped. Others, of course, just in America, hundreds of thousands of others have had to look at one another as they grieve the loved one that is before them and say to them, but we, we had hoped. Or maybe even just those mundane meetings and getting together with friends or family, things that weren't even planned. One of the darkest moments, if I can be so honest about this whole season, it was a good moment, but it was, was, it was probably around May or something like that, when we, after having been quarantined for so long just with our family, when we looked at our girls one afternoon, after having been invited to friends to go over to their house outside, but to see them, and we said, hey, do you want to go over to your friend's And they all began to weep. And I got a glimpse of how much they had been hoping. But of course, all of us have this, COVID or not, we have moments when we we are thinking about a mom or a dad, a brother or a sister, a, a child or a friend, we say, but we had hoped that we would find a cure. Or maybe it's a job that we thought finally this is going to be the job that takes us right into retirement, but then we have to say, but we had hoped that it would last. Maybe it's a marriage, and you're having to look at a child and say, but we had hoped that we could stay together. All of us, all of us have these moments of grief and despair and shock and pain. And one of the things that this story, if you don't move to the end too quickly, one of the things that this story does is that these travelers are inviting us into their journey. Not yet have they reached Emmaus. They are no longer in Jerusalem in the middle of this, but we had hoped. And whether it's a crisis of faith as they were going in here, whether it's the light love of a uh, that who's passed away or whether it's just simply the fact that your life just seems like this monotonous tedium and is nowhere near what you had imagined years before it would look like. These travelers are inviting us in their journey. So often, as we have said before, the church, ironically enough, the place where we should be able to be so honest about our hopes that weren't fulfilled, sometimes the pressure, the pressure is almost immeasurable to at least act as if all of your hopes are fulfilled. And the story of the road to Emmaus is saying if you are standing and you are in despair. You are welcome here. Now the question, of course, is what we do when we are in this point of saying, but we had hoped. Well, these two disciples, these two travelers, they were headed to Emmaus. What is Emmaus? Frederick Buechner suggests That if what they were doing, as it seems, is they were trying to get away from their confusion and despair and the hopelessness that's in Jerusalem, that in many ways, perhaps, Emmaus is an escape for them. It is perhaps this hope that if they can just reach Emmaus, maybe then they won't have to think about the reality that is all around them. Maybe then they no longer have to suffer. Maybe then they won't have to think about those questions that are unanswered. Maybe then they won't have to reflect upon a God that they are so confused about. And if that is the case, Beekner says, then perhaps for us... Our own Emmaus is that same place where we oftentimes long to escape, to get away, to hide. Of course, Emmaus can look like almost anything. It can look like the nearest drink. It can look like the next Netflix series to binge and escape. It can look like a dysfunctional relationship to which you run. It can look like a vacation spot where you can hopefully just forget everything that has happened and blind yourself to the pain. When I thought about this Emmaus in this way, my mind immediately went to me as a 10-year-old Many of you know the story. I won't bore you with all the details, but it was just a few days after Christmas when my father finally decided that he was going to leave. We had known it was coming for about a month. I don't actually remember a lot of things about that particular day. I don't remember him packing up his things. I don't remember his loading up his car I don't remember a last embrace. I don't remember looking at the taillights as they head off into the distance. All of those, I suppose, would make for a good story. But I don't remember that. What I do remember is my Emmaus, which was an ice skating rink. I'd never been to an ice skating rink. But for some reason, my mother thought that's exactly where we should be. So not long after my father had left, perhaps within an hour, I don't recall exactly, we also hit the road to travel to our Emmaus. Now the hope, my guess is, I've not ever asked her, was that perhaps we would be distracted. That if I was concerned about falling on the ice I might not be as concerned about how the world around me certainly seemed to be falling. But what I remember now, even almost 37 years later, is that there was really no moment, no matter how many times I went around that rink, no matter how many times I fell, which were many, Not for one moment did I forget that everything had changed. What I knew the whole time we were at that rink was that as soon as I returned those skates and got back my tennis shoes, that we were going to go home to a house that had no Father in it. You see, the thing about Emmaus is that it doesn't actually change anything. Because the pain and the brokenness and the questions continue to remain. So what then do we do? In these moments when we are wondering, in these moments when we are struggling, saying, but we had hoped, when we are tempted to simply get to Emmaus where perhaps we can for a a moment at least put it all behind us. See, I think that what this story tells us is that what each of us have to know is that whether you are still right there in the midst of Jerusalem or whether you have made it for a moment to this escape called Emmaus or whether you are somewhere in between like these two travelers were, what we need to know beyond the shadow of a doubt is that even when it feels like it is the case that we know that we are not alone. That even when those around us who we may know best seem but strangers to us. That we can in some way believe that Jesus is there. That even though we may not feel it, even though we may not see him, even though we may not recognize him, to be able to get to the point in the midst of the but we had hope And to know that we do not travel alone. Part of of the call of the church is to be that visible presence to those around us here and to the community. That in those moments, even when it seems like all is falling apart for them, we stand in the gap, if you will, as a reflection of Jesus Christ, as a witness to say, you are not alone. I thought about this a bit yesterday as we gathered together, many of us, in order to mourn and to celebrate the loss of Mary Faulkner. As I looked around, I saw a group of ladies with whom she would oftentimes go after worship to break bread sticks at Olive Garden. But their simple presence here was a testimony to the friends and to the family that we serve a resurrected Savior even in the midst of our we had hope. In those moments when we do what feel like very pedestrian things for those who are grieving, in those moments when we simply make bread, in those moments when we simply make a meal or we write a note or we say, you know what, we just want you to know we're thinking of you. When we merely are present, we are doing so much more than just filling up space. We are saying beyond the shadow of a doubt, what you need to know is that you are not alone. And that again, as Beekner says, even in those moments when you may not see Jesus or you may not recognize Jesus, what you need to know is that Jesus sees you. When Jesus was going through the scripture, what he was trying to do was to help us to see that the more that you understand the word, the more that you see Jesus in scripture, the more likely you are to be able to see him in our every day. You see, the hope is that as we read these stories, as we learn these stories, is not like this story today that you just simply say, okay, check the box, I know that. But that it is so, soaked deeply within you that in those moments of grief when you cannot see Jesus anywhere, that you remember this story and you remember mocking, laughing at these silly travelers who did not recognize Jesus. And you say to yourself, you fools, how do you not see him? He's right there. And just about the moment you say he's right there, you realize that you are talking to nobody but to yourself. The reason why we gather together in order to break the bread, it's not because we think that if you don't eat something before you get home, you'll just be famished. And it's not simply so that you can recall what happened long ago. But it's because in moments like these, you need to literally and figuratively and spiritually chew on the reality that Jesus is here. And that in moments of great despair, of great saying, but we had hoped. What you need is to be able to feel the presence of Jesus deep within your bowels, within your stomach, and be reminded that you are not alone. This story invites us into a journey. As we break the bread, as we soak in the scripture, as we reflect Jesus to one another, may the scales fall off of our eyes. May our hearts be warmed. May we know that we do not travel alone. Let us pray. God, in the midst of this journey, it is easy for us to be caught in despair and to either flee from it or dismiss it. But what you call us to is a life of honesty, but one that knows that that our struggles are not done in solitude. so on this day, whether we are in Jerusalem or whether we are at Emmaus or whether we are somewhere in between, may we feel your presence and know that you are here. Amen and amen. Sisters